Okay, um, so we're going to be carrying on in Ephesians chapter 1, as it says on the screen. So if you want to get your Bibles open, your screens up, not looking at Facebook or anything like that, let's just stick to the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. So um, I, I was running late, and as usual, I was trying to fit too much into an already busy day. And I was driving a little bit quicker than I should have been. Uh, through the streets of Birmingham. Uh, I was neatly crossing the lanes in the tunnels. I was doing the stuff, driving like a pro, but unfortunately missing the one essential factor, uh, the police car following me (laughs) and my every move. And uh, he wasn't impressed. And as soon as he pulled me over, (laughs) he gave me a complete dressing down. He didn't hold back. He just, he didn't like me, I don't think. He didn't like my driving. He didn't like my car. He didn't like anything about me, it seemed. Uh, I felt the full force of his wrath and bore the full penalty of the law. There was no mercy. And and what was really embarrassing was the reason I was late, uh, the prayer meeting. (laughs) I was late for a prayer meeting at church. And this is where I discovered just how sarcastic policemen can be. I won't repeat what he said. It's still too painful. But he wasn't impressed with my Christianity or anything about me, it seemed. And it struck me as I reflected on this moment in the prayer meeting later on just how hard the law can be. There's no argument. There's no reasoning with it. There's no justification. The law was broken, and that was that. The price had to be paid. The punishment given, three penalty points and a £60 fine, and a stern and very sarcastic telling off. Well, the next bit of Ephesians chapter 1 is about the problem of the law, or perhaps the problem of my law-breaking, and uh, the remedy of grace. So I want to just read to you Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 8. If you just want to turn there with me, if you've not done so yet. So he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure, his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I mean, this passage here is just full of bits of legal terminology I'm trained as a lawyer, so I find this stuff quite interesting. There's all kinds of legal references here. First of all, there's the word adoption. We've already looked at that. Adoption is the word that means legal ownership. He's adopted us. He has legally bought us. Redemption, the legal price that has been paid. Becky Webb took us through that last week so brilliantly. And then the forgiveness of sins. Well, literally the word sins is law-breaking. Forgiveness of sins, let off our law-breaking. That word sins is transgressions. But the whole passage is about the remedy of grace. 
which is demonstrated through the act of forgiveness, where God literally lets us off our law-breaking, unlike my policeman friend, which is why Paul says all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace, and that all of this in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. So it's God's grace that is in view here, and that literally bookends the law. All the legal references are bookended with grace. And sometimes, you know, when you read the Bible, it's good just to look at the text, just to look at the order of the wording and how it's laid out. But the law is encased in grace for us. So, in one easy session, I want to cover the law. Come on to forgiveness and end in grace. Okay? How's that sound? That's the attempt. That's what we're going to try and do today. So first of all, I want to talk about the law. What is the law? Well, the law, biblically, is God's moral standard. It was there right from the beginning when God said to Adam first, positively, you may eat of the tree of life. The first law of God is positive. I like that. It's a command, a positive command. The second is negative. You may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may and you may not. The law is whatever God tells us we may or may not do. He defines what is right and wrong. That's where morality comes from. And we can see the same pattern in the Ten Commandments. Firstly, we have a positive law, love God. And then negative, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and so on. And then as we know, Jesus went even further, or perhaps he didn't go further, but he explained it in more detail, saying that it's not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law that counts. So again, love God, love other people, positive, but don't steal, don't even get jealous of what your neighbor has, don't murder, actually don't even hate, don't commit adultery, don't even lust after someone, and so on, making it completely clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of keeping God's law, which makes it pretty sad that for some people, keeping the rules is what they think it really means to be a Christian. Have you found those kind of people? It's all about the rules. You've got to get to the meeting. You've got to get there on time. You've got to pray so many times a day and for so long and so on. But you see, keeping the rules just sets us up for failure. Anybody? (laughs) Because if you can't keep one of the rules, you've broken all of them. That's what James says in chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. We are all lawbreakers. So we're already sunk. We're already sunk. We're lost because we're just not good at keeping the rules. We're just not good at all. And the truth is, is that we all have within us this urge to touch the bench. We've got some pictures here touch the bench to see if the paint is really wet when it says do not touch to walk on the grass when it says not to just to see what will happen when you do I did that once in Spain and all the alarms went off and the security guys came with their guns and I realized that walking on the grass wasn't a good thing to do or have you ever had that overwhelming desire in a national trust property when it says do not touch I just want to touch and see why what about this one that a friend of mine told me about have you ever been tempted to press the flush on an aeroplane 
when you're not meant to be touching the flush when you're sitting on it. Anybody ever tried it? It's really grim. Don't do it. I won't explain. I'll leave that to the imagination. But, you know, even if we could keep all of the rules, it wouldn't make us better Christians. Now, Paul tells us in Romans 3.20, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Because it's through the law that we actually become more conscious of our sin. I wonder if you can relate to this problem. Do you ever find yourself struggling to live up to things? (laughs) Even your own standards, let alone God's. To some impossible standard to try to be a better Christian. Ever? Anybody? New Year's resolutions? How many failures have we got here? Come on. You know, trying to... (laughs) Trying to obey the rules doesn't improve us or make us better Christians. It just makes us more aware of our inability to keep the rules. We just become more and more aware of our sin. And we become downright miserable too. That's the purpose of the law. Anyone? To show us where we fall short. Which is why God, in his infinite mercy and wisdom, had to provide a different solution. It's called the forgiveness of sins. This is a way of letting us off our law-breaking. A solution which means that the guilty go free. And the cost? The price Jesus paid with his blood on the cross, as Becky was showing us last week. The redemption price which sets us free from the slavery of the law. So I want to talk about forgiveness, and there are two parts to forgiveness. The first is legal forgiveness, which happens once and for all, for all eternity. That's efficacious. Oh, big word. Woo! And secondly, relational forgiveness, which is ongoing relational forgiveness. So legal forgiveness, the theological word for that is called justification. And justification is another legal term in which God literally declares over our lives that we are righteous. And it means that we no longer have to face the penalty for our sin. Our justification shockingly means that we actually get away with it. He makes it as if we've never done anything wrong. Never Never. From the moment we put our trust in Jesus and his blood, we are freed from the threat of eternal condemnation and adopted into his family. Which is why Paul can write in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. How much condemnation is due to us? None. None at all. Those who are forgiven have no price to pay for sin. That's redemption. We're not even subject to any charge of guilt or condemnation because of justification. As Paul says again, Romans 8, 33 to 34, who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who's he then that condemns? 
So here's the revelation of grace, that God himself justifies us, making us holy and blameless in his sight, as Simon was sharing with us a couple of weeks ago, so that we can boldly approach his throne of grace. Our legal standing and position before him is forever assured. Our sin is dealt with, past, present and future. It's gone, it's done, we go free. That's justification. That's what it means. That's the legal part of our forgiveness, a declaration of our righteous standing before God. And that brings us into an irreversible relationship, irreversible relationship where God is our father and we are his sons and his daughters. I am justified. Come on. That's good stuff, isn't it? And then there's the second part of forgiveness. It's relational and it's ongoing. This is relational forgiveness. You could call it daily confession. I mean, how many of you know that just because your sin has been dealt with and you've become a Christian that you still do bad things? You know, we still get angry. Well, some of us do. Some of us still struggle, struggle with bad thoughts. We still hate people. We say bad things. Sometimes, especially when you're doing the decorating. And that even born-again Christians sometimes struggle with Christian uh, with sinful behavior. Anybody? So what do we do about that? I mean, do we, okay, do we need to do anything about it? Because justification means that everything's forgiven anyway, so we, do we need to do anything about it? Some have wrongly thought so. But our justification is our legal standing And our continuing to sin affects our relationships. And as I've already pointed out in this series, God is highly relational. I don't know if you knew that about him. (laughs) He loves to be called Father and he loves to talk to us and spend time with us. He loves to manifest his presence among God is highly relational. And so he doesn't want anything to ever come between us again. Never. It cost him too much. And so we have to keep a short account with him because even though sin has been dealt with, our daily sins can still become a barrier between us and keep us from intimacy with the Father and in our relationships with one another. They're also part of his family. And he doesn't want us having stuff between us. And so Jesus tells us the solution in the Lord's Prayer. Shall we pray it? Ready? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever forgive us our trespasses our law breaking as we forgive those who trespass against us our justification our our legal forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't still have to confess our sins to god it just means that when we do we are assured forgiveness (laughs) it's our legal right to do so And so John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, just, that's the legal bit, and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all 
unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. And the verb tenses here even show us that we should continually be confessing our sins. So that he will be continually forgiving us from our sins. Keeping the channels clear. Staying pure. Staying rightly related to God and to one another. You see, the relationship we are brought into affects the whole family. Father, forgive me as I forgive them. That's the scary thing because there's even a hint of conditionality there. As I forgive them. I mean, how would you feel if the amount of forgiveness the Father was able to give you was directly proportionate to the amount you've given to other people? If you could see the scale, how would it affect your attitude to forgiveness? So we need to practice daily confession and receive daily forgiveness if we're going to experience the full benefits of his grace in relationship with God as Father. So that's what Jesus is highlighting here. Continual forgiveness, both for you and your sins, but also for those who, for, who sin against you. So how are you doing with this? <laughs> how are you doing? Are you keeping short accounts? That's what relational forgiveness is all about. And Paul says, he says, lay aside the weight that so easily besets us, so you can run. How many people know it's hard to run when you put on weight? (laughs) Physically, it is. But it's hard to run spiritually, too. When you're weighed down with sins and unforgiveness towards yourself and towards other people. You've been feeling heavy recently. You know, these things have a habit of weighing us down, even sinking us. I mean, how did you find worship this morning? That's a good indicator. How did you feel? It's hard to soar in worship when you've got lead in your boots. So Jesus' model of daily confession and forgiveness is so that we will not allow ourselves to become habitually clogged up with our sins, but rather we should habitually confess our sins, keeping a short account with God. So I've summarized the difference between Uh, legal and relational forgiveness. So legal forgiveness deals with sin's penalty. Who knows what the penalty of sin is? Death, okay. And relational forgiveness deals with with sin's relational consequences. What are they? What are the relational consequences of sin? Separation. Secondly, legal forgiveness frees us from the Lord's condemnation by God as a righteous judge. What's that talking about? He's in judgment of us. He's in judgment of us. Relational forgiveness restores us to a loving father grieved by our sins. How many people know that he can still be grieved when we sin? He, He withdraws slightly. Thirdly, legal forgiveness deals with our position before God. This is our justification, our position. And relational forgiveness deals with our condition before God. Our sanctification, that's ongoing, continual. I know we could go on about all that for ages. I'm trying to do a lot today, so bear with me. So the kind of forgiveness Christians are supposed to seek in their daily walk is not pardon from an angry judge, but mercy and cleansing from a loving father. How's that? 
So how should we respond then when we sin? Because, you know, we will sin. I will. Justification means that we should no longer respond with guilt and shame, but with indignation that you're living below the standards of who you are now in Christ. You have a choice. (laughs) And I don't need to live that way anymore. And so our request should be an urgent request for restoration. You know, Satan may accuse you, but you are legally entitled to rebuke him and tell him to take his accusations to Jesus because there's no condemnation. (laughs) If you confess your sins to God, you are instantly restored and forgiven. Instantly. Doesn't need to be a waiting time. You can instantly receive forgiveness. But I suspect this isn't how we usually respond. (laughs) We beat ourselves up, don't we? And we, we hide away because of our failure. That's because we forget our position in Christ, that we are justified and guaranteed forgiveness. And we look instead on our performance and our failure to live up to the Christian life. But it's our position that counts, not our performance. <laughs> so we need to stop trying to prove the way that we live by the way that we live, that we're now righteous, that somehow the way that we live now pleases God, our works can never please him. Our position as his adopted sons in Christ is all that matters. Christ pleases him. This is God's grace. And I guess how you respond in these moments of stumbling and failure depends upon the kind of relationship you have with your father. What do you think he's like? And here again is the revelation of his grace. Because there are only two ways to respond when you fall. Either, help, I've sinned. I feel so bad that I'm going to run away and hide from my father until I feel better. That's what Adam did in the garden. That's the first way. Or, help, I've sinned. I feel so bad that I'm going to run and tell my father and then I'm going to feel better. Which way is it? One is relational. One knows who you are in Christ and knows who your father is to you. And the other one is distant from God and he's still an angry judge to you. Keep short accounts. Deal with sin immediately. Confess it to him. And if you're trapped in shame and condemnation, confess it to another. (laughs) Confessing your struggle with a trusted friend not only has the strength of accountability... You know what that means, accountability. It means my ability to live differently and having an account of that, accountability, and the power to break the secrecy and shame that we all feel when we fall. So James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. How many people know that you need healing when you sin sometimes? Just need healing. You've just got, you've hurt yourself. You've damaged your relationship with God. James goes on to say, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. (laughs) Wow. So forgiveness is pretty amazing. So do you believe this is true? Do you believe that you can have this? Did you know that this is what you got when you first believed? Did you know that was in the package? Continual forgiveness, unlimited grace. So why do we keep trying so hard? 
Why do we even bother trying to live the Christian life? Why do we beat ourselves up so much when we get things wrong? Isn't that just the law? I mean, if all of this is really true, it begs the question, then why should I be so concerned about sin if it's all dealt with and we can be forgiven any time, anyway? You're getting scared yet? You know, I'm taking it to its logical conclusion, isn't this, but isn't this dangerous teaching that can lead us into a very relaxed attitude to sin? Great. You're just beginning to understand it. Because, you see, the amount of forgiveness that we can receive is proportionate directly to his unlimited grace. Grace is the scale of forgiveness. And this is often called the scandal of grace. So I just want to touch on this, and then we're going to come to a close quite soon. So the scandal of grace is primarily that God is willing to justify. Remember, that means to be declared legally forgiven. He is willing to justify the ungodly, and he does. He lets them get away with it, just like he let you get away with it. Romans 4, 5, Paul calls this the God who justifies the wicked. Now, that's some title, isn't it? Can you imagine having that name? Hello, you're the God who justifies the wicked. I worship you. That's who he is, the God who justifies. Just let it sink in for a moment. I mean, feel the full force of that God of love, God who justifies the wicked. We worship you. You're amazing. The scandal of it. I mean, can it really be true that if you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live, you will still be forgiven and declared righteous in his sight? That it doesn't matter how much you sin, that it will not be held against you, and if you confess your sins, you will be forgiven again and again and again. Now, this is the point at which you want me to just jump in with some balance or some explanation, but actually there is none. This is what it really means to understand and embrace the grace of God, which has been lavished on us. It is outrageous. The people who first heard this teaching came to the same conclusion that this was outrageous. So Paul had to write this shockingly provocative question in Romans 6. He says, well, shall we continue in sin then, that grace may abound, so that we can have even more grace lavished on us? And it seems like a reasonable question. The truth is that there is a scandalous edge to a proper understanding of God's grace. And until you see the scandal, you haven't begun to understand the grace. I first encountered this when I read Philip Yancey's book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. You should read that book. Every Christian should read that book. I I remember feeling a a growing sense of unease and feeling very uncomfortable like some of you might be right now. As I was working through his arguments and his illustrations, to the extent that I got about halfway through or maybe a bit further I was beginning to get really angry and start throwing the book down because I thought, he's gone too far. This cannot be right. Surely not. Which is the point where he neatly slips in a line that goes something like, by this time, 
you might be just beginning to feel a little uncomfortable with some of the things I'm saying. Congratulations, you are now just beginning to understand the true extent of the doctrine of grace. Yes, but that's Philip Yancey. What about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Let's get something really solid here. I looked that up just to try and disprove what I was reading. He comments on the scandal of grace in his commentary on the book of Romans. Now, that's where you want to go for some heavy stuff because that's where Paul fully lays out his teaching on the subject. So this is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, he's got such long sentences, always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man or woman is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people may misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more glory to his grace. This is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel does not expose it to misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. If someone preaches justification by works, no one would ever raise this question. Do you feel a bit safer now? (laughs) The gospel of grace should always raise the question, why should I bother to avoid sin if I'll always be forgiven and seen as righteous, is it? Anyway, it should. It should always bring us to the precipice of danger. (laughs) That feeling of skating on thin ice and saying, is this really going to hold? Will he really forgive me again? (coughs) And this message is a message of incredible freedom that we're completely accepted by God and nothing we can do will ever change it. Or as Philip Yancey so memorably puts it, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us any less. Nothing you can do to take me away from my God. (laughs) And this is because Jesus Christ alone is our righteousness and nothing we can ever do Nothing we do will ever change this fact. You know, when you leave here today, he will still be your righteousness. When you wake up tomorrow, he will still be your righteousness. When you sin in the week or the week after, he will still be your righteousness and he will still love and forgive you. That's his grace. That's the scale of forgiveness that he offers. No wonder Paul writes in... Ephesians 1, a bit further down, it's going to take the whole of eternity to even begin to understand. The law of God, let me conclude. The law of God has been satisfied. The price for our forgiveness paid in full. This is all to the praise of his glorious grace that has been lavished upon us with outrageous extravagance. So what stops you from asking for forgiveness today? You know, what keeps you in your guilt and condemnation? Why not cash the blank check of continual forgiveness that has been offered to you from the bank of his grace?
That's just so poetic. Come on. I mean, that was... I wrote that. Do you want me to read it again? No. Why not cash the blank check of continual forgiveness that has been offered to you from the bank of his grace? What keeps you from an intimate relationship with a father who's like this? I mean, surely you want to be close to somebody like that. Somebody who loves you so unconditionally. He has already done everything that is needed for acceptance into his family. So learn how to rest in his grace and be intimately related to him. On the other hand, his grace frees us to want to live differently. Contrary to what you might think, the more we experience of his grace and of his love and of his acceptance, the more we lose our appetite for sin. But that's the way around that it is. If you try and do it the other way around, you just end up with law. As Paul writes in Titus 2.12, one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible, in my view, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Grace teaches us. Have you got the handle on that? Have you got the understanding of the revelation of his grace so that I actually don't live like I used to live because I'm just so overwhelmed with his grace? He lets me get away with it. He doesn't hold me guilty. He doesn't condemn me. He forgives me. So I want to live to please him, someone like that. See, grace demonstrated through outrageous forgiveness sets us free. And what I've realized is that when my sin is greater than his grace, then sin dominates me. When my sin is greater than his grace, sin dominates me. So don't try and stop sinning. (laughs) Bet you never thought you'd hear that at church. Don't try and stop sinning. If you're struggling, ask for more grace. And ask for the revelation of the freedom to live by grace. To live up to who you are now in Christ. Don't try to stop sinning because that will just be law to you. Asking for more grace. Stop trying to be a Christian. Stop it. He's so fed up with you trying to be a Christian. You can't do it. None of us can. Relax and bask in this wonderful liberty and celebrate in it every day. How how many times have I said here, being a Christian is meant to be fun. It's meant to be fun. We, We get to party with the king of the whole universe and go into his courts and worship him and get forgiven. And he never judges us on this side of forgiveness. You're going to need a supernatural revelation to get this. I want to just... um, I I didn't want to do this in a long-winded way, so I hope you've managed to get enough. But there's several things on offer from this message. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from condemnation for those that are in Christ. So are you in Christ yet? Because that's the only place you can have freedom from condemnation. If you're outside of Christ, 
is still condemnation. If you become a Christian today and receive the gift of his forgiveness and acknowledge your sin, you will be justified in his sight. And there is then, now, no more condemnation. That's number one. Are you free from condemnation? If you're a Christian and you're feeling condemned, you need to get on the right side of forgiveness because there is no condemnation. Freedom from guilt. That's the second thing. Have you received forgiveness? I mean, my experience pastorally working with people is that people confess their sins, confess their sins, confess their sins, and they're still confessing their sins, but they never receive forgiveness. Because somehow I'm working up my confession of sin, and it's kind of a legal thing. It's weird. Confess your sins, receive forgiveness. I confess my sins, Lord, I receive forgiveness. Do you need to do that today? You've been confessed, confessed, sin confessed, sin confessed, confess and receive. Receive a dispensation of grace through forgiveness. Respond in faith. And the third response is, do you feel far from the Father? Now, you've been a Christian for years now, but he's just feeling distant. Well, just let me ask you about your daily confession. I've helped you already because we prayed the Lord's Prayer. There you go. That's already helped. That's already done something. But confess your sins and be restored and cleansed. Maybe you need to ask somebody to pray for you today. That accountability. Come on, you can do better than this. Don't you know who you are? Yeah, that's not you anymore. That's, what, that's the old you. Accountability. You're new. You're a new creation where the old has gone and the new has come. That's accountability. That's who you are now. You don't need to live like that anymore. You're getting excited, Joe. <laughs> and let somebody pray for you. The prayer of a righteous person. That doesn't mean somebody who's a leader or anybody like A righteous person is anyone who's in Christ. The prayer of a righteous person avails much. I guess I'm going to pray with you if you're just struggling to break out of something. So I'm not going to call you to the front, but I do want to ask you to think about these three things. You're under condemnation. You don't need to be. Come to Jesus. Are you feeling guilty? You need to receive forgiveness. Receive the healing that goes with forgiveness. Remember that? Confess your sins to one another and pray that you be healed. Be healed. You're feeling far from the Father. Maybe you need to do some daily confession. And I'm not going to call you to the front um, for this. But I I want to urge you not to go from here without making one of those responses. Okay? I'm going to pray now because the mediator of grace is actually in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Do you know the word grace just means gift? And the gift that Jesus left us with is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask for the spirit of revelation. That's what Paul prayed. He says, I pray that you would see. I can't quote it. It's really good. That you will see and that you will have revelation from the Father. So if you would like that, just stand with me now. If you don't want it, just sit down. It's fine. Just stay there. But if you would like a revelation of the Father, the revelation of grace, will you just stand with me? I'm just going to pray that God will give that to you. And there's no judgment or condemnation. So if you don't want to stand, that's absolutely fine. I know I'm just being cheeky. So just put your hands out like you're going to receive a gift. Thank you, Father.
I'm going to pray Paul's prayer, which is in the second part of Ephesians 1 that I was trying to quote earlier. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for all believers, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in your prayers. And I keep asking, and I ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given. Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Holy Spirit, will you release the spirit of revelation? And Father, will you break the power of condemnation? And will you break the cycle of confess sin, confess sin, and take guilt away, Father? Lord, would you give us an ability by your grace to receive forgiveness today? Lord, would you bring us into incredible intimacy with you? Father, David prayed, search me, O God. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, we pray David's prayer and say, Lord, will you show us, is there anything between us right now? Is there anything between us, anything I haven't dealt with, Lord? Any, Any sin that I've not confessed to you? Father, will you show me? I don't want there to be anything between us. I just love being with you. I love knowing your presence. I love hearing your voice. I love your acceptance, Father. Thank you, Lord. Maybe you just brought something to mind there as I was praying that. Why don't you just confess it to him right where you are? Confess just means, Lord, yeah, you're right, I did that and it was wrong. Thank you. Father, just remove heaviness right now. Remove weightiness, lead in our boots. Remove it, Lord, the guilt, the condemnation. It's not ours, Lord, we give it to you. We speak to Satan and we say, you take that to Jesus. (laughs) You take that to Jesus. If you've got any complaints, you take it up with him. Because I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm bought with his blood. And the forgiveness of sin is mine by right. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Now receive forgiveness. Just receive forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, for healing. I pray, Lord, release healing to people today. People who've been stuck in sin. People that have had just stuff, Lord, just weighing them down. I pray for healing. I pray for restoration. And Lord, will you fill us now with your Holy Spirit? Will you fill us again with your spirit again and again? Would you fill us, Lord, and set us on fire again? Give us back our fire. We're not going to mess with sin anymore. We want to love you, Lord. We want to just be in relationship with you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.